0: This is a case you won't soon forget. Deep in the Appalachian foothills of Pike County, Ohio, eight members of the Roden family were slain, execution style, in their beds on the night of April 21st into the morning of the 22nd, 2016. Three children, all age three and under, were spared, and a tight-knit Appalachian community was left with questions of who had done such an act and why. The largest mass murder in Ohio history would also set off one of its largest criminal investigations. I just might tell you this is just the most bizarre
1: story uh, I've ever seen in being involved in, in law enforcement.
0: Before we begin, we would like to send our sympathies to the loved ones who fell victim to these abominable acts on this dark night. The western edge of the Appalachian Mountains is home to Pike County, Ohio. Some 28,000 souls call the area home in a handful of small towns and among the valleys and hollows of the area. It can be a hardscrabble place to live with fully 24% of its population living at or below the poverty line. Opportunity is a rare resource, but it is balanced by a fierce independence. A frantic phone call to 911 on the morning of April the 22nd would lead authorities to the evil that had been done as the sister of one of the victims arrived at the property to feed the animals on the farm. She, Bobby Joe Manley, and her brother, James, then went into the house, discovering the horrors that had been done. Law enforcement officers and first responders flocked quickly to the scene and went into the cluster of three homes. The grisly discoveries they made showed that the attackers had achieved complete and total surprise on their victims. In the living room of the first house, they found the patriarch of the Roden clan, 40-year-old Christopher Roden, Sr. Christopher had been shot nine times from very close range and was the only one of the entire family to show even the slightest signs of defensive wounds. Five of the shots were to the face and head, another three in his torso, and a single gunshot was in his arm, as if he had attempted to ward off the attack. Nearby lay the body of Gary Roden, aged 38, Christopher's cousin. The man had two gunshot wounds to the head from close range and a third close enough to leave a muzzle stamp on his temple. There was no sign of struggle from Gary and it is thought he was asleep at the time the first shot was fired. In the next house, Chris's eldest son, Clarence, Frankie Roden, and his fiance, Hannah Hazel Gilly, were found murdered in their bed. Their four-month-old child was found unharmed laying between them, while their three-year-old child was found asleep on the floor. Frankie had been shot three times in the head and face. Hannah Gilly had been shot through the eye and an additional four times. James Manley then rushed down to the third home, that of his sister and Chris Roden Sr.'s ex-wife, Dana Roden, a home they shared with their 16-year-old son Chris Jr. and daughter Hannah. Hannah, 19, had just given birth four days before to her second child. Dana had been shot five times in the head, including point-blank shots through the temple and one upwards under the chin. In a nearby room, Chris Jr. was found with two fatal gunshots down through the top of his head. In the last room, Hannah Roden was found, dead from two gunshot wounds to the head. The newborn baby was unharmed and still attempting to suckle at the mother's breast. Her two-year-old daughter, Sophia, was staying with its father and the family while Hannah recovered from the birth, and so she had been spared this night of horrors. As police and first responders swarmed over the scene, the area was cordoned off and the members of the local community began to gather to offer support and to share in the shock of the discoveries. As news spread about the killings, a man from the crowd, Donald Stone, a cousin of Chris Roden Sr., began to worry about another member of the Roden clan who lived a few miles further down the road. He quickly called Kenneth Roden, age 44, and no one answered. Stone and two friends quickly drove down to Kenneth's small home and found that that man had not been spared the grisly fate of the other members of the family. He lay dead in the house, a single gunshot wound through his eye, fired from close range.
2: When you walked up to the residence, did you notice, uh, was the door unlocked? Yes. Okay. So you walked into the residence together and you said Luke was there first, but then you. And then what happened?
1: And then we walked in, he, we walked into the, supposedly the living room, and I noticed to the right, I didn't see him in there nowhere, so I seen a stairway to the right, and I walked up the stairway, and that's where I found him up there in his bed.
2: And when you say you found him.
1: (sighs) I found Kenny.
2: Can you tell us what condition you found him in?
1: He had blood all over his eyes.
2: And where was he located? In his bed. Okay. Did you believe him to be dead or alive at that time?
0: He was dead. There were now eight dead, all members of the same extended family. And there was a disturbing lack of evidence as to who had committed the massacre. No shell casings were found. There were no reports of any gunshots. Two pit bulls that lived at one of the trailers didn't even start barking that night, and that particular pair of dogs had a reputation for being hostile to anyone they did not know. In addition, not a single cell phone was found among the victims. There were no other signs of theft, and so the missing phones had to in some way be a removal of possible evidence by the perpetrators. The sheer number of deaths without any signs of the victims being alerted pointed to multiple assailants rather than a single suspect. But who could have done it? Forensic experts from the county sheriff's department and the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation scoured the scene for any evidence they could find. Police sought out witnesses and tips, racing to outpace rumor and the code of the hills that might keep some people silent. Families in the community attempted to cope with the loss of so many lives as they buried their loved ones in the deep, dark hills of Appalachian, Ohio. The rodent patriarch, Chris Sr., and his brother, Kenneth, had a reputation for being on the wrong side of the law. A discovery of a pot growing operation in the barn next to Kenneth's house and the discovery of what could have been a cockfighting ring set up at the family complex only strengthened the suspicions that those endeavors had brought an end to those men. Rumors swirled about the community that the rodents had been involved with a Mexican drug cartel and that that had led to their demise. Killings like these had been the hallmark of those organizations, but never in areas as far north as Ohio. Two recent busts in pot-growing operations in Pike County had shown tenuous links to the Mexican drug cartels, so the smaller operation of the rodents could conceivably have been part of the bigger picture. Others said that the rodents had been part of the Cornbread Mafia, a large-scale drug operation that worked throughout the five-state area of the Central Appalachian Mountains. That organization runs pill mills and meth labs, making use of communities back in those hidden hollers of the region, as well as short travel distances across state lines to facilitate the gathering of the necessary manufacturing materials. More of a loose confederation than a true cartel, the Cornbread Mafia, as it was known, had some history of violence, but nothing like the concerted mass killings seen here. Still, law enforcement could not rule out that organization had moved into a new phase of violence. Hundreds of tips poured into law enforcement and rewards were posted looking for evidence in the slayings. State and local investigators poured through the tips and tracked down potential connections all to no avail. Enticing leads ended up going nowhere. The vehicles, mobile homes, and other evidence was removed from the rodents' property and put into storage to preserve it as their work continued. Custody of the three children left alive at the scene and two-year-old Sophia was brought to the courts to decide. Little Sophia, safely at the home of her father and another set of grandparents on the night of the murders, it turns out, would be the linchpin for the entire investigation and the centerpiece for the entire massacre." Investigators had no way of knowing at the time that what looked like an organized crime hit was actually a vendetta between two families that played out over the custody of that small child. Billy Wagner and Chris Roden Sr. had history together, there was no doubt about that. They didn't live that far apart and both were from a more rough and tumble part of the community. The possibility that they had sometimes been partners in crime and possibly competitors in it was common knowledge of that part of local lore. Billy's son Jake and Chris's daughter Hannah Roden had dated from the time she was 13 until a year or so before the killing and they shared the daughter Sophia. Outwardly Billy Wagner shared nothing but praise and friendship about Chris, particularly in an interview with the Ohio BCI.
3: now, our plan, we going to buy a car on the beach and just sit there, and, you know, get drugs sit on the beach and, you know, play with the strippers.
0: <laughs> Once again, outwardly, the entire Wagner family seemed to be very concerned with Sophia's well-being. They filed for custody of the child shortly after the murders, producing documents allegedly signed by Hannah Roden stating that the father would have sole custody of the child should anything happen to her. And as the community settled back into normal life over the next few months, the Wagners, as a group, pulled up stakes and left the community. They headed to Alaska, about as far away as you could get from the violence that had occurred in Ohio. They would return, as a group, along with a new wife for Jake, about a year later. Things had cooled down in Pike County, and while the investigation wore on, life there had returned to normal for the regular population. The Wagners reintegrated into the community, and all the men got jobs at a local trucking company, where they were, for all intents and purposes, model employees. And that, on retrospect, was a little outside of their normal pattern. The Wagners had never been known as what one would call a model family, or even a normal one. In a region where families are close-knit and clannish by nature, the Wagners stood out, Growing up, the two sons, George and Jake, were homeschooled and kept close to the house. The tight family structure even held up after the parents, Billy and Angela Wagner, divorced, with Angela moving into a small home just down the road. While they kept to themselves and voted together on every family decision, it created a strong and indelible bond between them. When George married, his wife was also brought into the fold and kept under very controlling influences of the main four. When Jake married a woman while the family was in Alaska, she too would find herself under the crushing, controlling nature of the family. Not long after the family returned to Pike County from their stay in Alaska, something happened and the two women bolted. What they told police and family members is not public knowledge, but perhaps coincidentally, the investigation into the Roden family massacre turned towards the Wagners. The facade of friendship and custodial care fell apart quickly, and a sinister story began to unfold, one of an illicit underage love affair, jealousy, and conspiracy, a story that would lead to cold-blooded, calculated murders. (laughs) all to obtain permanent custody of the young Sophia. Assistant Attorney General Angela Canapa, leading the prosecution in the case, laid out the beginnings of the love affair to the court, setting the stage for what was to come.
2: It kind of starts with a love story, if you want to call that. Um, A very young teenage girl, Hannah Mae Roden, age 13 at the time, was at the Pike County Fairgrounds. Um, she participated in 4-H and she had bunnies and uh, somebody introduced her to Jacob who was almost 18 at that time and she kept asking him to um, look at her bunnies or pet her bunnies Um, Jake will tell you that he was annoyed initially um, but then on a second um, chance meeting um, they started dating if you can date at age 13 That was in August of 2010. Um, Reportedly, Jake gets permission from Chris Roden Sr. to date his daughter, his very young daughter. Um, Chris Roden agrees, but he always sends along a chaperone. Either Frankie or little Chris go with Hannah Mae whenever she's hanging out with um, Jake Roden. And you will learn as well that Chris Roden Sr also knew Billy Wagner. They were in fact friends. Um, And so because of that, he gave his permission um, for her to be dating Jake.
0: Assistant Attorney General Angela Canapa, leading the prosecution in the case, laid out the beginnings of the love affair to the court, setting the stage for what was to come. The two broke up after jealousy and anger took a turn for the worse within Jake. She called her father to come and get her after Jake allegedly choked her. She said that she couldn't take not just Jake, but how the whole family attempted to control her life. From there, the battle began over who should have full-time custody over the child. Hannah proclaimed on social media to her friends that she would never give the baby up to Jake and she'd rather die than give a child up to him and his family. What she did not know was that the messages were being monitored as Jake and his mother, Angela Wagner, had hacked into her Facebook account. A seemingly private statement to her friends may well have set the families on a direct path that would lead to her death and those of seven of her loved ones. Jake had already made statements saying that he didn't like the people Hannah was seeing and who their child was being exposed to. It was during this time that Hannah began dating a man named Charlie Gilly, the brother of her sister-in-law, Hannah Gilly. The short-lived relationship would result in another pregnancy for young Hannah Roden. The birth of that child didn't just further push Jake over the edge, but it also provided the Wagner family with an opportunity to enact a plan they had been working on for some time. Four months prior to the birth of the child, Jake and his family had gathered around a table in their home to entertain a plan devised by Billy Wagner to remove Hannah, not just from the picture alone, but to remove anyone else who might have a claim to Jake and Hannah's child, Sophia. The possibility that other scores between the two families were going to get settled as well cannot be ruled out. The Wagners voted on it, as they often did with many life decisions that would affect the group. There were killings to be done, and afterwards they would file legal motions for the custody of Jake's daughter. No one would be left to stand in their way, and there would be no challenges to follow. What happened next was months of planning, purchasing, and preparing to do the deeds. The Wagners knew they had to cover their tracks and be discreet in every phase of the plan if they were to get away with their skullduggery as they intended. They needed to be thorough in the killings. They needed to be quiet in the planning. They needed to leave no evidence behind and they needed to make sure no one would be alerted to the killings as they were happening.
2: Investigators also found receipts and video evidence of the Wagners making purchases of shoes during the same month of the homicides that matched identically the shoe tread marks left in blood at one of the scenes.
0: The family began by purchasing two pairs of athletic shoes from a nearby Walmart, one for each of the sons. The shoes were not the size worn by the children, The shoes were not used and instead were intended to be worn on the night of the murder. The shoes were different sizes than the young men normally wore and of styles they would not normally have chosen. Handguns were obtained for each of the two sons. The firearms chosen were 22 caliber long rifle semi-automatic pistols, quieter and with less recoil than a larger caliber pistol but still very deadly, particularly at the short ranges used in the murders. The men also purchased a manufactured suppressor for one and parts for making a second for the other gun. While not completely silencing the gunfire, these would limit the sound to just coughs that wouldn't carry well outside of the trailers the Roden family lived in. In addition, they purchased brass catchers, pouches, which are slung on the pistols to catch ejected shells after each shot were purchased and mounted on the guns. The two sons practiced with those weapons and others extensively over the intervening months in a wooded area behind the Wagner family property, as shown by later investigations where bullets were recovered from standing trees. In addition, the remnants of a burned out homemade suppressor were found in the area after Jake told them where to look. The family also purchased a cell phone jamming device to be used during the slayings, and both young men dyed their hair to further change their appearances. While this was going on, according to Angela Wagner's testimony and plea deal, documents were forged showing that Hannah had signed a statement saying that if she were to die or to become unable to care for the child, custody of Sophia would revert to Jake Wagner and his family. Those documents would be held until a few days after the killings in hopes that they would receive the child in a way that would make them look caring and concerned and wanting to participate in the child's life, but not in the mother's death. The Wagner's son also began to stake out the Rodin family homes, They were both familiar with the property and the people who lived there and how they came and went. What they learned now was the activity patterns of the family. When did they come home? How late did they stay up? Were there visitors after dark and when the family slept? The information would serve them well in the terrible task they were undertaking. The fateful evening came right after Hannah Rodent had given birth to her second child, Sophia had been sent to the Wagners for a couple of nights while Hannah, at her own home, recovered from the birth of the new child. As the Wagner plan sprang into action, Hannah went to bed with her newborn and went to sleep. The Wagners drove up to the Roden family property that included three trailers and homes along with a number of outbuildings and other farm features. The father, Billy Wagner, went into the house of Chris Roden Senior, ostensibly to recruit him for a lucrative drug deal. George and Jake hid in the pickup truck as their father gained entrance to the home. With murderous efficiency, they moved from home to home, killing adults and youths, but leaving the infants and toddlers untouched, just as they had planned. And then they disappeared into the night and began their plans to dispose of any evidence and assume their roles of shocked, surprised, and concerned members of the community, ones who shared a bond of friendship and near family with the murdered rodents. The truck was ditched outside of the area. Their clothes and shoes were disposed of. The weapons, which could certainly incriminate them if ever found, were made to disappear in an ingenious manner. A cousin of the Wagners was having a birthday in the very near future. The man was a fisherman and often took his boat out on nearby lakes and waterways to enjoy his activity. The Wagners took the guns, shell casings, and suppressor remnants and placed them in gallon buckets strung on long lengths of rope. They then poured wet cement into the buckets and let them dry, sealing the evidence of their deadly deeds and they turned them into boat anchors as gifts to the cousin. Those anchors were later taken out to a local lake and their lines were cut, sending the evidence to the muddy bottom. They would have remained there unknown and lost had things not taken the turn that they did. The four publicly maintained the image throughout their move to Alaska and again back to Ohio, but cracks began to appear in the facade. Perhaps the two women who left the family gave information, perhaps someone at work overheard a conversation, but whatever it was, local and state law enforcement began putting together the pieces. Soon, listening devices were hidden in the work trucks used by the Wagners, and a wiretap was begun as well. The Wagners were questioned as to their relationships with the rodents, then brought in and finally charged with the murders and the other crimes dealing with that night.
1: We promised that the day would come when arrests would be made in the Pike County massacres. Today is that day. George Billy Wagner the Third. His wife Angela Wagner. and their sons, George Wagner IV and Edward Jake Wagner. After an extensive, thorough joint investigation by the Attorney General's Office, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, as well as our Special Prosecution Section, and Pike County Sheriff Charles Reader's Office, these four individuals are now in custody for allegedly committing this heartless, ruthless, cold-blooded murder.
3: I'd only been sheriff of Pike County less than a year before April 22nd of 2016. And that day changed a lot of our lives, including mine. The images of the houses, the bodies, the scenes, I can never erase them. Even 20 years of law enforcement experience cannot prepare you fully for a day like that day. Every single day since that day I have worked, we have worked as a team to figure out who did this in Pike County where I have spent my entire life. We have obsessively focused on solving this case. We've been patient when it was painful to be running down every lead no matter how small. But it all has brought us to this day. Today we have the answer. Members of one family conspired, planned, carried out, and then allegedly covered up their violent act to wipe out members of another family. They did this quickly, coldly calmly, and very carefully, but not carefully enough.
0: Sitting in jail, proclaiming their innocence, the specter of COVID-19 dropped onto the world, and the family found themselves incarcerated, separated, and awaiting trial for nearly two years. Two years that proved to be too much for Jake. Jake Wagner cracked under the weight of the silence and admitted to all 23 charges that had been levied against him. He cut a plea deal with the state in exchange for the death penalty not being used against him or his family, he would tell everything. He said that he personally pulled the trigger on five of the killings, leaving the other three deaths to weigh on the shoulders of his father and brother. He also testified that his mother did not have a hand in the actual killings, but that she had stayed home that night. He did, however, implicate her in the conspiracy, the cover-up, and the forgery of the custody documents. With his plea deal, Jake will serve eight concurrent life sentences for his crimes with no chance at parole. Angela will serve a 30-year sentence for her role. Both Billy and George are undergoing trials for these crimes at the time of this story. Both have refused to admit their guilt. Text messages obtained from the night of the killings corroborated, in part, his story of the pretext for the meeting of Billy Wagner and Chris Roden Sr. The weapons, hidden in the cement anchors, were recovered and broken from their molds. Bullets matching those recovered from the bodies were found in random trees on the back portion of the Wagners' property, along with the remnants of the burned-out homemade suppressor, like those found with the recovered weapons. It was a long, slow grind, but the wheels of law, if not justice, seemed to have finally caught up with those who murdered the members of the Roden family six years ago. Jealousy and rage, conspiracy and lies, All have now given way to the survivors, who must carry on however they can. Our thoughts and hopes go with them. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to like the video, comment down below with your take, and subscribe to the channel. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadows.